from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Ben Terrace calling from The Washington Post. Hi, Jeff. Miss Winfrey, Oprah. Hi there. How are you? It's Lisa Bonas calling for The Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, March 4th. Today, the conspiracy theory that rocked D.C. four years ago, the aftermath of the Texas storm, and the legacy of a Washington power broker. Four years ago, a young man from North Carolina drove to D.C. Motivated by baseless conspiracy theories and raided a local beloved pizzeria, ended up firing his assault rifle a couple times. Mike Miller is a local enterprise reporter for The Post. An adult male approximately in his late 20s uh, entered the uh, Comet Pizza uh, with, an, with an assault rifle. Uh, the folks that were in the establishment at the time immediately fled. Uh, there is some evidence that the weapon was fired uh, inside of the location. The servers came up to us and said uh, a man had just walked into the building, passed us into the back of the building. He seemed to have like a, a shotgun or rifle type affair. Um, and said we ought to vacate the building. So we walked out the front of the building. And it was this really kind of terrifying event for the people there and for people in D.C. And Metropolitan Police Department arrived, arrived on the scene immediately, set up a perimeter, uh, and were able to take him into custody safely. I was kind of reminded of it when I saw what happened on January 6th with the Capitol siege because, you know, really there were a lot of parallels in terms of people being drawn or motivated by conspiracy theories to commit real-world violence and, and obviously drawn to D.C. as well. I remember when this event happened at Comet Ping Pong, which oftentimes people in- inaccurately call it Comet Pizza, but that's where, like, Pizzagate came from. But But my recollection from that day was just that it was both so scary and also so weird and random that this conspiracy theory about like children being imprisoned in the basement of a pizza shop, it just didn't make any sense whatsoever. And it's funny now to think about it because I do feel like that was kind of our first taste of the kinds of conspiracy theories that we've seen over the past four years and in a way that like doesn't feel as random anymore, where now I look back and I'm like, wow, yeah, there is a pretty direct through line from this one guy who showed up at this pizza place four years ago to January 6th when you had hundreds and potentially thousands of people who believe in those kinds of conspiracy theories. You know, yeah, I was really struck by that kind of parallel too. And and it was in a way this kind of moment when we realized that we were in this age of misinformation, this era of of kind of falsehoods that we're now very much in the middle of. So this guy at the center of all of this, Edgar Madison Welch, who was he before Pizzagate? And what do we know about how he ended up showing up at Comet Ping Pong on that day? In a way, he was you know, driven by a lot of the same things as, as the people would be four years later. He was a, a young man who was kind of at this bit of a desperate moment in his life. He found a YouTube video about Pizzagate 
and it really uh, struck him. It really motivated him. And part of that was because of who he was. You know, he was 28 years old. He was uh, working at a grocery store warehouse in Salisbury, North Carolina. But also he was somebody who was really concerned with the treatment of children. And part of that was when he was eight years old, his older brother, 16-year-old, died in a car accident. And that moment really helped kind of propel his family, a very devout religious Baptist family, to really be concerned with the well-being of others, to think of themselves as kind of rescuers. You know, his mother, who was a nurse, became a volunteer firefighter. The, the family took in stray dogs and fostered children. At one point, Edgar Madison Welch went to Haiti after the earthquake in 2010, and he called his parents asking if he could bring back children orphans, you know, to kind of save them. So at this moment, this kind of low point in his life in, in 2016, he finds this YouTube video and, you know, it just really strikes a chord with him and it becomes something that he can't stop thinking about. He texts his girlfriend about and she says, stop it. She tells him to stop it, to stop obsessing about it. What was this video? Was it like, uh, it was just like someone talking about some of these like email conspiracy theories? Yeah, it was, um, it was an Infowars video on Pizzagate. So it was a video that was made by, you know, Alex Jones's website website Infowars and really kind of was a hodgepodge of different snippets of, of news about this conspiracy theory and kind of drawing these connections that, that didn't really exist. They say that, you know, there's a dungeon at this uh, pizza place. And as you can see, there's no dungeon here. Oh, God, there's so many hot dogs coming, you know. Of course, Alex Jones later would have to apologize um, over his role in spreading this conspiracy theory. But, you know, even though the video was essentially bogus, you know, it was something that really uh, ended up kind of uh, lighting this fire in this young man, Edgar Madison Welch. And so, you know, he shared it with his friends. He started talking to them about, you know, going to D.C. and, and as he put it, quote, raiding a pedo ring. So he was really convinced by this and he felt that he was going to save kids' lives by going there. And of course, you know, we know now that that it was completely false Another kind of detail to it was that just about a month and a half maybe before he went to D.C. And, and tried to kind of save these children, he was actually driving to this warehouse, you know, this kind of uh, low-paid uh, uh, job, and it was late at night, and he actually struck uh, a teenage kid with his car, and the, the teenager nearly died, and, and Welch apparently tried to kind of help him and stayed with him until you know paramedics could come. But for somebody who was so worried his whole life about the, the well-being of children, he was really shaken by this, this incident. And so that, in a way, kind of fed into his reaction when he saw the Pizzagate conspiracy theories a few months later. So we now know, thanks to documents released as part of the court case, that as Welch was driving to D.C. that, that day, he recorded himself uh, as he was driving on his cell phone, essentially recording kind of goodbye messages to his family. Can't let you grow up in the world that's so corrupt by evil. Better leave standing up for Children just like you. 
he says basically that you know he couldn't live with himself if he didn't try to save children that he had taught them to stand up for others and that's what he was trying to do was to protect children just like them records these kind of goodbye videos uh, on the way to DC, essentially preparing for, you know, what he thinks is going to be a battle of, of good versus evil and kind of a siege or a raid of this pizzeria that he thinks is kind of the, the heart of darkness. And he's prepared for, you know, the worst for him being killed or arrested. So, you know, it's these really kind of glimpses into his mindset and how seriously he took this conspiracy theory. So, so tell me a little bit about like what has changed four years later. Like, where are these people now? Where is this guy now, the gunman at the center of this? Basically, he's back in this, this small town, this town of Salisbury, North Carolina. It's a place that he kind of has uh, dis- kind of derisively referred to as Smallsbury. Um, you know, it's a city of about 33,000 in North Carolina. And when this incident happened four years ago, uh, I was kind of pulled into covering what happened that day and trying to make sense of it. Because as you said, it was so bizarre. Uh, it was hard to kind of unravel like how how this guy had gotten there. And he pleaded guilty. He was sentenced to four years in prison. And while he was in prison, I uh, sent him letters. I sent him emails. And I just really wanted to kind of understand more about him and, and his path mm. to this moment of kind of madness in a way, this moment of terrible violence that could have gone so much worse. And did, did he ever respond to your to your emails or letters? He did, actually. He responded uh, in one email and he said basically that, you know, he, he wasn't interested in reliving it. He wanted to kind of move on with his life. I kind of set that to the side and, and hoped that he would change his mind and stayed in touch with uh, some relatives of his. But when this incident happened on, on January 6th, I, I thought like this was the time I really needed to kind of dive back into the story just because those parallels were so strong. And, and of course, because Pizzagate and QAnon are, are kind of linked in a way. Um, QAnon kind of rose from the ashes of, of Pizzagate in a way and expanded upon it um, in a way. And so, you know, I thought I would essentially kind of see where this guy was now. And, you know, I realized that he was out of prison. He got out of prison almost a year ago. He was put into a a halfway house. And then he was released from that in May, kind of in the middle of the pandemic. So how did you go about finding him and finding out what his life has been like since he left prison? Yeah, I mean, I I sent him messages, of course, and I sent uh, his family messages and his his girlfriend, now wife, messages. And ultimately, you know, because I, I wasn't really getting anywhere, I just decided to drive to Salisbury. essentially just kind of knocked on a lot of doors. Yes, sir. Hi, I'm sorry to bother you. No problem. Um, I uh, had reached out. Uh, My name is Michael Miller. I I work for the Washington Post. Thanks for coming. I'm busy. No, I just really... Hey, I'll see you here again. I'm going to arrest you, okay? Serious business, trespassing. 
I just want this pro is posted, okay? I just wanted to talk the to you. That's all. The property is posted. One more time, okay, Michael? No, I appreciate that. I'm serious. You understand English? Yeah, I got. Do I, you? I just wanted to okay, be. Okay, I'm going to have you arrested. No, I'm I'm leaving, sir. Okay. I just I just wanted to make sure that I tried to talk to you and your son. That's all. You tried. Good effort. Do this you, is it. Last warning. Do you think he would like to talk to me? I don't think so. Can I try? Like, how would I reach him? No, he needs to get off papers first. Okay. Okay, but even by telephone. Can I leave a note? Okay, thank you. You know, what I quickly gathered was that his his family and his friends really weren't interested in, in talking about it. You know, they had kind of received instruction from him that he didn't want to talk about it, he didn't want to revisit it. But I was able, you know, through talking to a few of them and, and also kind of through social media to kind of piece together a little bit about his life and to, to, to realize that he essentially had kind of you know, surprisingly, in a way, had slipped back into a really what we'd call normal life. I mean, he um, had gotten married uh, pretty quickly to the girlfriend who had threatened to leave him four years ago and now, you know, had waited for him. And so they got married and, and uh, then they had a kid just uh, a month or two ago in, in December, I think. So, you know, in a way he has, it seems, uh, kind of been able to move on with his life, hmm. leave this kind of moment behind. Um, but, you know, the, the kind of million dollar question is still like, what does he believe? You know, what does he still believe in this conspiracy theory? And, and it's one that the judge really kind of powerfully pointed out during the sentencing, saying that, you know, Welch, Edgar Madison Welch, the gunman, was sorry. He said he was sorry about what he had done, but it wasn't clear if he was sorry because he realized that, you know, this conspiracy was false and that he had done something really dangerous and violent, this vigilante act, or if he was just simply sorry that, you know, there was no one there that day that he could kind of save. And I'm curious, for the owner of, of this pizza place, what has his life been like for the last four years? And I would imagine there are probably problems or at least challenges that have come up because his restaurant essentially became famous for something pretty bad. Yeah, absolutely. He's he's never really stopped dealing with this um, because... Uh, essentially this conspiracy theory, um, you know, had kind of gone into hyperdrive right before the 2016 election. A few days before he started noticing all these kind of uh, bizarre uh, threats and comments on his social media. And then, you know, it just got worse with death threats and calls into the pizzeria after that. And then, of course, on December 4th, 2016, this incident where Edgar Welch came and fired his gun and since then, it hasn't really let up. They still receive lots of threats, lots of bizarre phone calls. And his social media, you know, he read me some of the messages that he receives. And and they're really frightening. I mean, he every time he opens up Facebook or Instagram, he sees dozens of messages from people falsely saying that he's a pedophile, hoping that he dies, hoping that he repents or burns in hell. So, you know, he is still dealing with this. And some of his employees who were there that day are still traumatized too. So it's something that he hasn't been able to shake, even though, you know, the gunman has kind of apparently moved on with his life. And when we think about what happened at Pizzagate, what happened to this guy, Edgar Madison Welch, what do you think that tells us about what we can expect from the future? Well, I think, you know, it, it tells us that it's going to be really tough to deal with these conspiracy theories. The experts I've spoken to, you know, point out that, you know, uh, 
the the reach of these conspiracy theories has just grown exponentially thanks to social media. And so, you know, four years ago, it was Edgar Madison Welch finding the Pizzagate conspiracy theory on YouTube and sending it to, it to his friends. And now, you know, it's people finding QAnon on Twitter, on Facebook, you know, on YouTube again, on Instagram. And it's kind of being disseminated to thousands, if not millions of people around the world. And so, you know, I think the challenge now is is even starker than it was four years ago. And, you know, in a way, this moment was a warning and it's one that we didn't really heed. And so hopefully, you know, after what happened on January 6th with the, the Capitol siege, officials and authorities and also social media companies will take this a little bit more seriously and, and perhaps, you know, prevent something like that from happening again. Mike Miller is a local enterprise reporter for The Post. Earlier this week, Congress was warned about QAnon conspiracy theorists threatening the Capitol on March 4th. We do have some concerning intelligence, but we have enhanced our security posture. We've taken immediate steps to let uh, the National Guard as well as our workforce know what to expect. On Thursday, the House canceled its regular session because of these threats. So for the past week, I've been covering the winter storm that, though it was foretold, seemed to take everyone by surprise and knocked out power and water service to millions of Texans. Arlise Hernandez is a correspondent for The Post based in Texas. Been covering that storm and then the aftermath of that storm, the little pockets of recovery that are happening all across the state right now, tucked into places you wouldn't expect where people are still dealing with the aftermath of the terrible freeze. Okay, hola, mi nombre es Marilu Leiva. One of the people that I met was a woman named Marilu Leiva. Y bueno, ahorita vamos en camino para, para mi vivienda. She's one of 50 families that live in this mobile home park in Austin, in South Austin specifically, that's sort of tucked behind this popular brewery and surrounded by million-dollar homes. And yet, there they were, you know, almost 200 people who had not had water since the beginning of the freeze. The residents of this mobile home park have been using a city tap to fill up buckets to take to their homes to use for flushing the toilets and things like that. They've had plumbers out there to sort of look at what was there and have been quoted for thousands of dollars. This is a largely immigrant community. And folks were telling me that these are prices that they just cannot pay. It's been a hellish year in terms of employment. And most of these folks do either odd jobs, they do babysitting or childcare or or clean homes, that kind of thing. And it's been really inconsistent for them. So to shell out, you know, three to $5,000 for plastic plumbing underneath their mobile homes is just not feasible for them. You know, when the storm start, we had electricity for the first day. After that, we woke up because it was very cold. There was no electricity. 
I met Hussein Kamal at another mobile home park on the east side of Austin. I had first met his wife, who had told me this harrowing story about how their three children had to be hospitalized for carbon monoxide poisoning. And then we were trying, you know, just to uh, keep the kids, our children, like, warm. Even with everything, we put, like, so many layers of clothes, but they still feel cold. So they used a charcoal stove inside of their mobile home, and soon enough... My older one, he stopped having this headache, vomiting, uh, you know, like a nausea. And then we rushed to... Even with, it was very hard to get to the hospital. You know, I mean, the, the, the roads, they were like, like silk, you know, I mean. And that was only the second night of the freeze. They endured three more nights of, you know, sub-zero temperatures inside of their mobile home. And now that power has been restored, now that water service has been restored, Hussein still has problems. For us, we we, uh, we have like a pressure washing business. It's been a little bit slow since, you know, the COVID and things. But now we, uh, we just uh, found out uh, our machine uh, Vibes or the the bombs they they destroyed also from the cold. So, and so right now they have no income coming in. They've had to cancel jobs in a year again. That has been extremely difficult for small business owners with the pandemic and in terms of the demand and the kind of work that they're able to get. So Hussein was frank with me about how uncertain he is about the next couple of weeks for his family. How are you thinking through all of that? Uh, I'm not really sure, honestly. I'm just let it let it. To, to, you know, just hoping for the the, the good, not not really uh, uh, have any plans for now. So it seems like their situation reflects the situation of a lot of Texans right now, and that just because the weather is warmer again doesn't mean that some switch is flipped and that things go back to normal, that fundamental parts of their utilities and their infrastructure have been broken and that there's not really a plan to fix them. No, that's exactly right. I mean, they're kind of having to patch together help from wherever it comes from. There isn't sort of a comprehensive or cohesive plan for getting these folks or integrating them into sort of a broader plan. They live on privately owned land. I mean, they're responsible for a lot of the plumbing that happens. But you're going to see this sort of throughout Texas and throughout Austin, again, as these pockets of places, mobile home parks, apartment complexes, senior living facilities, they're privately owned by owners who, you know, sometimes don't even live in the state or who are not able to respond as quickly as some of those residents would like. And you find folks in varying degrees of, I guess the word would be destitution, especially in the case of some of the uh, senior living facilities that are serve low income families that, you know, Austinites who have been working to to bring about, uh, you know, some help to these various communities are finding folks in really bad situations. And she was sitting in the, sitting in her chair and I was sitting on the couch next to her and just just sitting there and the power just went off. That's, that's how we knew. Albert Holscher spent three, almost three and a half, three nights shivering inside of his apartment with his ailing wife. Uh, just getting all the many blankets as I could find in the apartment, getting them out and putting them over us, 
they had two recliners sort of set up in their in their living room side by side with a lampstand in between and they just sat there that's that's all i could do is just you know just put blankets over her trying to keep her warm Albert said it was worse than anything he experienced in in Vietnam as a veteran. This was a lot worse than Vietnam. Vietnam, you knew what was going on. Here you didn't. Did you sleep at all those those three or four days? Very, very little. It was too cold to sleep. I was just sitting there shaking. I was shivering and shaking. I look up at the clock, then maybe be... 15, 20, 30 minutes later, and it was the last time you looked, and you're just trying to think, is this is this ever, ever going to end? All I was just trying to do was survive, and that's what it was, trying to survive. I, I know you were just trying to survive, but was there a point where you were, that you got really, really scared that you might not? I didn't for myself, because I knew I would make it. I was worried about her. They got through those three days of cold, but on the second day that that they had power restored, Rena May, his wife, woke up that day and was totally incoherent, was totally out of it. And Albert knew, you know, that things were going down quickly for his wife. She was still coherent when this all happened. I'd say after about 24 hours, I could see the change. The way she tried to talk, things she was talking about, she wasn't really making any sense. You couldn't under- I couldn't understand what she was saying half the time. And then uh, she just kept getting worse and worse. And then finally Friday morning, I called it. Well, she begged me not to call the EMS. She was always begging me not to call the EMS. And finally Friday morning, I couldn't take it anymore, so I did call them and what did EMS tell you? Did they say that you couldn't go with them or, or what happened? Yeah, they, they said there's no way that I would get into hospitals. The best thing I could do was stay right here by the phone and wait on a phone call. Probably what, five, six hours later, I got a call from from the hospital saying she expired. How How difficult was that for you? Pretty difficult. Real difficult. And I know the weather had something to do with it, that she passed away that soon. She was sick when this happened, but I never would have figured she'd be dead in three days. You expected to have more time? Yes, I did. I definitely did. So what is the Texas government doing to help all of these people who have now had their lives permanently altered by the last couple of weeks? The Texas legislature has vowed to investigate what happened and take a close look at who's responsible for for what happened. We have some of that story already, and and it's been widely reported uh, that, you know, part of the problem with Texas's power structure has to do with deregulation, has to do with winterization, has to do with oversight at a state level. And those investigations are going on right now in terms of meeting people's physical needs. There's been an effort to try to root out price gouging. Folks, I think as early as last week, were already getting quoted on electric bills of up to $10,000. So they vowed to help with that kind of work. And the major 
disaster declaration that was signed by President Biden will help to release some funds, individual assistance and things like that to people across the state who need help and don't have insurance, for example, to make repairs on busted pipes or damage to their homes. But there's going to be a lot of help that Texans are going to need moving forward. And is there reason for Texans to feel confident that if this kind of weather or this kind of event were to happen again, that they would fare better next time than they did this time? From the reporting that I've done so far, no, no. People are still incredibly shaken by what happened last week and almost feel gaslit by the fact that the that the weather has changed so rapidly as if to erase, you know, what happened last week. People are very, very angry. How do you feel about the fact that you were left without power for so long? Very angry with the system. I, I don't understand how anybody can be being paid what they're being paid to do a job and obviously they damn sure wasn't doing their job. Arlise Hernandez is a correspondent for The Post based in Texas. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. And now, one more thing. Who is Vernon Jordan? That's a very complicated question. Robin Gavon is a senior critic at large for The Post. She wrote about the legacy and life of Washington power broker Vernon Jordan. He died at his home on Monday at the age of 85. He was a civil rights activist. He was a lawyer. He was a Wall Street financier. He was someone who sat on the board of many corporations, and he was a friend and counselor to multiple presidents. I think he's probably best known for um, his long friendship with the Clintons. It is tempting to believe that our problems are particular and that our situation is unprecedented. I've come to say to you this morning, We have been here before. But our journey also teaches us that endurance is not enough. Listen, we do not sing we shall endure. We sing we shall overcome. Vernon Jordan really came of age at a time when being part of the establishment meant that you had access to the levers of power. 
And it meant that you had managed to sort of break through one of the most tremendous hurdles as an African-American man. And so that was something that was really seen as a mark of success. And it was also seen as not just a, a mark of success for the individual, but for the entire community, because the expectation was that where, um, you know, this one individual was able to go, um, he would reach back and bring others along. Many years ago, when I was new at the Washington Post, I wrote a story about his style, which was something to behold. He was incredibly dapper with this sort of combination of European flair and Wall Street banker stripes and Sunday morning church polish. And, you know, he wore clothes incredibly well. And uh, I had called to talk to him about his style and he did not return my messages. But after the story ran, he called to express his uh, gratitude for it. And when I picked up the phone, there was just this very deep baritone that uh, asked, what must I do to be saved? And I was sort of like, what is going on here? And he repeated the question, and it was sort of his way of apologizing for not having returned the earlier phone calls. We chatted for a bit, and um, he essentially said, there's ever anything I can do, you know, just call me. And shortly after that, I left the post and I moved to New York to work for Vogue. And Mr. Jordan called to congratulate me on the new job. And he was telling me about his time living in New York and how he and his wife at the time had been working to buy a co-op in New York and just the amount of racism that they faced and how challenging it was dealing with co-op boards. And I was in the process of buying a co-op in New York. And after he told me that story, he wrote a a reference for me to my co-op board and said, again, if there's anything I can do, please call. And I was really just sort of struck by the fact that he really seemed sincere in that offer and that, you know, the act of writing that reference for me was in many ways a a way of sort of making it better for the next generation. I think one of the biggest takeaways from his life is that he was someone who was not at all shy about his personal desires for success and to, um, you know, to move ahead in the world. There was also this belief that as he moved ahead, he was bringing others with him. And so I think that balance between personal success and, you know, sort of a broader success for those who come after you, who look like you, was a really, um, was a balance that I think a lot of people can take a lesson from. He firmly believed 
that of course he should be in these spaces. Of course he should be doing this. Of course he should, you know, should rise to these levels of success. Because why not? Robin Gavon is a senior critic at large for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. As we come to the one-year mark since the pandemic started, we at Post Reports would love to hear from you about how you found joy this year despite the challenges. This can be anything big or small. Daily walks, baking bread, eating bread, cold calling old friends, a new hobby, K-dramas. What has kept you afloat? Tell us by recording yourself on your phone and make sure to include your name, where you live, and what brings you joy. And email it to us at postreports at washpost.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.